You're listening to another great message from Northside Community Church. Last week I was chatting about saving Private Ryan, Tom Hanks, and I thought if you're on a good thing, then stick with it. Uh, you recall the first scene? Uh, he and a whole bunch of other men had crammed themselves into one of those little landing boats off the main ship as they prepare for the Battle of Normandy, and as they head ever closer to Omaha Beach, the outside of this metal open plan type boat, is stung with bullets and all sorts of explosives that are going off in and around them. Men are starting to be hit in the head. Guys are going down before they've even landed on the beach. And the the reality seems to sink in. You see the fear in their eyes as they know what they're about to embark on as that landing door goes down upon that beach is really a battle of survival. Here we get to chapter 6 of Ephesians, and Paul pretty much paints exactly the same picture. He says, Finally, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God. He uses a military example to take us um, back up to the lofty heights that Paul seems to operate in so well, right? If if you recall, with chapter 1, he was talking all the reasons why God was bringing all of the church together that he was forming a new humanity, the modern family, uh, that, that through Jesus he was bringing people of all different backgrounds together, form, forming them into the church. And because of that, why, chapters 1 to 3, he was giving us the how, chapters 4, 5, and 6, that the Christian is to live. And here he says, finally, he's getting ready to go. His time could be up in the prison. His, our time's up in this series as we approach our last message for this six-week series in Ephesians. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord, And in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. I stop there because we can't get through all of that passage tonight when we talk about the topic of spiritual warfare. Uh, really, it's a topic that could last for six weeks in and of itself. And I'm, I'm conscious when we look at this uh, approach, to, uh, approach to evil, when we look at this approach to spiritual warfare, on one hand, you can have those that take the casual approach and say, well, there's, oh, there's no such thing. What are you talking about? It's all in your head. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you can have people that seem just absolutely obsessed with the devil and everything demonic and everything within his realm. You know, and C.S. Lewis said in his Screw Tape Letters book, the general public first either ignore the forces of evil together or are taken by an unhealthy interest in everything demonic, which can be just as bad in the long run. Now, I don't know where you sit in that spectrum tonight. But the first thing we learn and the example that Paul paints for us, and first and foremost, is that Christianity is a battle. And the first question we ask in that is, why is it a battle? Take a look at verse 12. It says, For our struggle, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, 
and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The struggle's not against fl- flesh and blood. <laughs> in the majority of cultures, right? Asia, Latin America, Africa, the existence and the problem of evil is an everyday thing. I mean, I, I, I was watching uh, Ross Kemp. He was an actor in the show EastEnders. And Ross Kemp does all these crazy, crazy documentaries. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but uh, he's doing a new series at the moment called Ross Kemp Extreme World. And in this documentary, I, I, I struggled to watch all of it. I just had to flick through in 30-second incre- increments. In this documentary, he, he goes into the very heart of what they call the sorcery belt in East Africa. And, and he goes in there and he's looking at... A battle that is going on there, a battle between the general population and gangs of people that go around trying to kill other sorts of people that are known as as witches or sorcerers. And these witches and these sorcerers go around and and Kemp's following around all these various stories as uh, various albino Africans are having parts of their body parts cut off while they're alive so these sorcerers can use them and mix them up into various potions. And he's saying you know, part of the solution to this problem could, could be the police on one hand, but they're doing nothing about it. And then he takes you to a scene where you see a whole bunch of people in a forest and he says, this could be the solution. And it was a church service. And then he goes on to interview someone who had been a witch doctor, someone who had cut the body parts off someone, and someone who now sitting next to their pastor declared that the power of Jesus Christ had saved them from something wicked and something evil. In flicking through this documentary, I I couldn't help but think that on a same Sunday, there could be a pastor there this week sitting in a forest like that with a bunch of people that were once witch doctors. And then there could be me sitting here tonight in our cozy little church. And we read phrases like, this battle is not against flesh and blood, but schemes of evil. And I, I look... At the difference, you sort of say, well, how can, how can we read the, the same passage? And for one church, this is the lifeblood of their existence. And for another church, it's a point of interest. I think it's because there's a level of spiritual blindedness to the things of evil in the Western world. I mean, you've got to ask any, I'm seeing people here, anyone who's been on a missionary trip into these various cultures know the way in which the majority of the world see the problem and the existence of evil. And so there's a blindedness in our culture, the the, the blindedness to this existence of evil, and more importantly, a blindedness to the reason and the causality of evil into some aspects of human behavior. Like, uh, I don't know about you, can you ever recall that, that shocking story about those two British kids who one day decided to get up out of bed walk to a shopping mall, find a little toddler, lure him out to a set of train tracks, do all sorts of unspeakable acts to him, weigh his head down on the side of the track and wait till the train comes along. And when you read up on the story of 93 of Thompson and Venables, if that's how you pronounce his name, the the, the lines say that the, the real issue in this case here The real issue was how to sentence young offenders. That was the issue. And of course, from a legal perspective, yes, that's the issue. But is that the real issue? 
the, the real issue is, how do we deal with evil in the human soul? Uh, uh, where, where does it start? Where does it begin? And uh, this is why the Bible is a, is, a, is a remarkable document. It's not simplistic, it's realistic. In the Bible, if you read through all the passages, says, they say that from a biblical perspective, the problem of evil is that there are embers. There are embers that burn away on the inside of everyone. That there are embers that if the winds of opportunity and the winds of intention happen across, blow across it at just the right time, that a fire will erupt from within them of frightening proportions. That the Bible says there are embers of the soul. There were embers of the soul in people like Hitler and his Holocaust. There were embers of the soul in people like Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge that systematically destroyed 25% of their population. The very people that they were supposed to care for. And the now late Dallas Willard, who passed away this week, a great hero of mine in the faith, said that this is the illusion of our age, the holy grail of modernity, a pleasant dream in the sleep of secularism, that the monstrous evils we deplore are in fact the strict causal consequences of the spirit and behavior of the normal human beings following generally acceptable patterns of life. See what Dallas is saying? There's a gulf opening up that our society can't deal with. There's a gulf opening up between the problem of evil and our ability to even cope with it, our ability to reason with it. A problem that the West has with evil is not only its existence, but the insufficiency of the rationalizations around this topic. The insufficiency that says that it's pathology, your physical body, or it's social sociology, your relationships, whether it's family or friends, or your psychology, your mind, somehow are good enough excuses deep down that are good enough reasons for the horror that we see in the world around us. What do we do? What do we do with that? Modern research will tell you that if... if that if something has a power over you, the, the largest part of its power over you is in, the, in your denial that you're under its power. I mean, the first step out from under that power is to admit that you're not in control. I mean, that's the first step of AA, right? The first step of AA is that we admit that we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Step two, that we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. You see what I'm getting at? Friends, unless you understand that there is an evil beyond and besides the human condition, you will be forever under its power. The Bible is not simplistic, it's realistic. And so it says, therefore, you better understand the devil. <laughs> now someone's saying, you just, you just say what I thought you were saying? you you seriously saying that you believe in, in the devil? Well, does Roger Federer believe in Rafael Nadal? I'm a pastor. I understand my opposition all too well. We're Christians and we need to understand our opposition all too well. And so if you go, look, if, you're the, if you say, look, I'm a modern person, how can you be thinking about it? You're talking about a devil, you know, supreme evil power. Look, a couple of quick litmus test questions for you. First of all, look, do you believe in a good God? If you're the sort of person that says, I believe in God, but I don't believe in the devil. Do you believe in a good God? If you believe in a personal, powerful force for good, then why... Couldn't you believe in a 
personal powerful force for evil. Or the other question you could ask yourself is, do you believe in Jesus? Jesus says in Luke uh, 10, 18, he says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And Jesus said, I saw Satan. I saw this devil. I saw this evil power. As a follower of Jesus, do you believe in him, but you don't believe in this evil power? On what basis can you pick and choose about what words of Jesus you're going to believe? Or or more importantly, you could be a person who's not a Christian and you're a modern, you're educated He's saying, this is crazy, this is narrow, this is one-sided. Look, my question to you is, are you really being open-minded yourself? Asia, Latin America, Africa, vast majority of the... We're the the minority in the West. The vast majority of the world's cultures believe in what Paul calls the powers and the principalities. The vast majority of the world's cultures believe in some form of evil spiritual power. Can you? Yeah, does Federer know Nadal? Look, that's the question. It's not only why are we fighting, but it's who are we fighting. Verse 12 again says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers. You know, president Obama, before he was President Obama, in the speech that many tout as the speech which put him on the map, it was his 2004 address to the, at the Democratic National Convention. He says this, When we send our young men and women into harm's way, we have a solemn obligation not to fudge the numbers or to shade the truth about why they are going, to care for their families while they're gone, to tend to the soldiers upon their return, and to never, ever go to war without enough troops to win the war, secure the peace, and earn the respect of the world. You see his principle? It's the same principle that Paul's talking about. Paul could have given the address. The 2004 DNC. Paul's saying simply, if we know that Christianity is a battle, if we know that Christianity is a fight, then Obama's right. You've got to know your enemy. You have to know who you're fighting. And so we see, the Bible calls him the devil. When it comes to this enemy, the first thing we see is his scope. The scope of the devil is it's both pervasive and it's also personal. That's how big it is. On one hand, it's pervasive and it's personal. Look at this. Look at the words. But against rulers, authorities, powers. There's such big words, Paul. Big words. He's trying to paint vivid picture for us here. What Paul is getting at is that the scope, the scope of the devil's power is so large that the Bible calls him in 2 Corinthians the God of this world. In Ephesians, he's called the Prince of the Air and the Prince of Darkness. The scriptures teaching us really that there's only two kingdoms of the world there's the kingdom of darkness and there's the kingdom of light. And if, you know, for example, you know, John chapter 8, you remember Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and they don't believe in him. And he says in verse 42 to 44, he says, If God were your father, you'd love me, for I've come here, not, I've come here from God. I've not come here on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Uh, here's why, because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. Can you see how Jesus breaks it down real simple to scope? <laughs> there's either the kingdom of the darkness or this kingdom of light. In, in that sense, there's only two different humanities. There is a race of people that are under the kingdom of darkness, and there's a race of people who are under the kingdom of light. There is the mighty prince, Jesus, and there is the mighty prince, the devil. And the Bible is saying that in these two kingdoms, there's only two types of DNAs, of spiritual DNA implanted into the soul of a human. There's only a DNA that if in a, in a billion years from now, when the Bible says your soul still exists, there is a DNA 
within you that is either. That is either growing you into something that in a billion years from now, if you saw it today, you'd be tempted to fall down and worship because it's so beautiful and it's so wonderful. Or the Bible says there's a DNA that deep within your soul that if a billion years from now it's growing you into something that if you saw it today would be so horrific it would knock the wind out of you. The scope's easy. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. That's how big it is. But it's also personal. Jesus dealt with the devil personally. Now when Paul uses a word like authorities, he's trying to say there's, this supernatural force is not an impersonal thing. It's a, it's a personal thing. It's not impersonal. The, the devil is personal and he's a ruler. He was cast out of heaven. He has this whole host of followers and they're persons of angelic nature. You know, what are angels? People are saying, oh great, we're going to talk about angels. No, no that's a whole other subject. But what we do know is that God created persons. He created rational persons that could speak and could think and could create. And there were two orders of them. And there were humans and there were angels. And they still exist today if you do your Bible study. And the interesting spot, like I said before, in, in, in Luke 10 verse 18, uh, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. It's because he sent his disciples out. They've come back. They said, Lord, even the demons submit to your name. And Peter, the, the, Jesus says, I know. I saw, I saw Satan. I've, I've seen what went down. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, it says that, it, that Satan was thrown out of heaven with a whole bunch of angels. And why? We're not told much. But we're told in the Old Testament that it, it comes from Satan. The statements like this, that Satan said, I will ascend. I will be the most high. I want to be the top. You see, the sin of Satan in heaven was to, was to want to be number one. Was to want, want to ascend to the position of God on his throne. And he was cast out of heaven. And there was a whole host of followers that were with him. And that's where we get this demonic realm that we hear about, read about in the Bible, talk about in the Christian realm. But here's, here's the point. Satan's not just pervasive, he's personal. He's personal. If he's personal, it means he's got a character. Just as Jesus had a character. What's that character? It's diabolical. And you're thinking, oh, he was a naughty kid as well? And that's why my parents always called me, your behavior is diabolical. <laughs> that's where we get the word. The word uh, Satan is, is a translation of the Greek word diabolos. And, and, and it literally means that he's an accuser, he's a slanderer, he's a liar. It says the chief weapon, the WMD of Satan himself is the lie. That's the enemy that we face. His scope is, is pervasive, it's personal, and ultimately we see, just by virtue of his name, that Satan's a liar. Now, how does this work? We've looked at well, why do we fight. <laughs> now we're going to look at, at, at who we're fighting. Now, now, now we're looking at how, how does he work, how does he fight. Now, lo, some of you are thinking, look, you know, you're not fighting the devil until there's spinning heads and green projectile vomiting. And you know what got me when I read this passage? I went through, and I, I don't know about you, if you've seen the title this coming up, I thought, wow, we're going to preach on spiritual warfare. And I went, this is kind of boring. I, I was expecting it to be a little bit more sensational. I was like, yeah, I was, I was thinking off, and when we think this Hollywood approach to fighting Satan, it, it would, it, there'd be spinning heads, there'd be all sorts of crazy faces, it'd look like something out of an American Halloween movie. But it's, that's, look, if you understand the slanderer and the accuser and the deceitful one and the liar, that, the projectile vomiting is way too obvious. Way too obvious. 
You know, let's use the military example again. You know, what, what, what are some of the great? When have some of the great military battles been won? Not not when not when you come steaming in with all the rockets, <laughs> but when you have this incredible band of of fighters called the Special Air Service or the SAS. And what do the SAS do? They go behind enemy lines. They're, they're sneaky. They're quiet. They're careful. They're calculated. The devil is the great SAS combatant in this battle that is happening for your soul tonight. That's what Paul says. You see, it's far less sensational. I'll show you what it is in a second, but that's what makes him so effective. The devil's not an idiot. The devil's not stupid. He's a great ruler. Verse 11, it says, put on the full armor of God that so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. You know, that word there, the Greek word methodia, is where we get the word method from. It said he's scheming, he has methods. In other words, the, the devil works in stri- strategic schemes, in SAS schemes, behind enemy lines. Another way to put it is that the devil injects poisoned perceptions of the world, of God, and of your own life. He injects these poisoned perceptions into your mind. Now, I'll, I'll get to I, I call this the honky-tonk principle. On honky-tonk pianos, I don't know if you've ever seen them, they're like out of a movie in New Orleans. I'm thinking of one of those real junky old pianos. Ones that are, you've gone to your grandma's place and you want to play the piano and the thing's been sitting there for 60 years and you try and belt out a good rendition of chopsticks. And, and you're going, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-d
You have to have the power of the Holy Spirit and God to believe a statement like that. But that, that is the reality of what the Bible says the gospel is. That you're simul justus et peccator. That you're more evil than you dared imagine, but you're more loved and accepted than you dared believe. And so the devil tries to get in and he tries to muck with these strategies. And so here's, here are the strategies. Here's two different strategies that he uses. You read it throughout the Bible. Just two, temptation and accusation. In temptation, he attacks the first part of the gospel. You are more evil than you dared imagine. He says, no, you're not. No, you're not. He, he reduces your sin and he emphasizes God's mercy. He overemphasizes God's mercy. He says, come on, you're not, you're not that bad. Look what everyone else is doing. Come on. Little whispers. SAS. And then on the other side of it, accusation, he tries to take out the other half of the gospel and he says, <laughs> he take, attacks the second part, which says, you're more loved than you dare believe. And he says, no, you're not. He tries to reduce God's mercy and he tries to overemphasize his sin. It's right, I don't know, I don't know if you've been there. Right at that moment, we try and take in that wonder of the gospel. And he says, Do you remember what you did last week? See how it works? Temptation or accusation. And often, often the two of them, they're a one two punch. You know, the, the first punch is the left hand punch. It's just it's it's a little it's a little weaker than the first. Tries to tempt you a bit, and then and then the other one, the accusation, he comes in, he knocks you out. Now, what, what am I talking about? Let, let, let me get it here. Um, uh, Brooks, uh, uh, a Puritan commentator, had had a, he had something like thirty six different examples of how the devil can use temptation. And you might have been the sort of person tonight that thought, look, we're just going to spend twenty minutes, thirty minutes on just all the different strategies of temptation. But can you see why we need to see the bigger picture here? We need to see why we're fighting. We need to see who we're fighting. Now let's have a look briefly at how he fights us. Here's some examples. You might need a pen right now. If you haven't got it, back of your card that you haven't filled in yet. Oh, I'm cheeky. Because I'm going to belt through these. Here's how the devil works with temptation. He shows you the bait, but he hides the hook. He shows you the short-term gain of your sin, but he hides the long-term consequences of it. Here's the other one. He, he rationalizes sin. He makes you rationalize your sin. I'm not greedy. I'm just thrifty. I'm, I'm not manipulative or controlling. I'm just very concerned. Here's the other one he does. Number three, he overstates the mercy of God. Makes you overstate the mercy of God. Oh, oh come on. <laughs> you know, God will forgive you. Just do it. You know, he has to forgive you. Number four, he makes you bitter over suffering. He makes you bitter over suffering. No one knows how much I've had to go through. No one knows what I've had to go through. I, you know, I deserve just a little bit of indulgence. What are we up to? Five? Number five. Oh, this is a great one. The devil shows Christians how much fun the rest of the world is having. No, I might as well do it. it did. Look, look at where being a Christian has got me. Look at where being a Christian has got me with my re relational life. Look at where being a Christian has got me with my financial life. Here's the sixth one. It makes you compare one part of your life to the other. I'm really good over here, so as long as I've got most of this stuff happening here, then all of that doesn't matter. Uh, that's the mafia approach. Yeah, I kill people, but I'm good to my mama. 
That's some of the temptation examples. Here's, here's quickly the accusation examples. This is, this is what the devil does to you with his weapon of accusation. This is, this is, real, this is the real knockout punch. Three of them here briefly. Let's look at this. Number one, the devil causes you to look more at your sin than your saviour. How many, how many times are, are people saying that kids have got to constantly be receiving compliments? You know, Graham talked about it this morning. You know, just one bad word can set you off for a lifetime. And people say that, 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 that for every sin, we need to look at our Savior five times more. Here's the second way that he accuses you. He, 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 he helps you obsess with past sins that you can do nothing about. The third one, he, he makes you think that the troubles that you are going through right now must be punishment. <laughs> I must have been doing something wrong if I'm going through this level of suffering. And he, he gets in your ear and he says, you know, if God really loved you, you wouldn't be going through this. Like, you see how he works? He's sneaky. He's sneaky. But most of all, do you recognize any of these? You know what he's doing? Dun, 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 dun. He's playing you. Four out of seven might have meant nothing to you, already drifting off into a sleep, and then one of them struck to the very heart of who you are. You know what he's doing? He's playing you. He's playing you like a honky-tonk piano. And we have to understand that the great deceiver, Satan, that lies can be at the very root of the battle for your soul. The lies told to you from friends. The lies told to you from family. The lies told to you from your peers. The lies told to you from the culture around you. The lies told around you. There, That's what he'll work with. Every time we accept one of these lies, we just string up another string in the piano for him. The devil and his methodia, his honky-tonk piano. He, he plays us. He plays us. You and I both. So finally, how do we fight back? <laughs> how do we get him? Verse 13 says, Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. You know what it's saying? It's saying, so that when the day that that guy comes in and starts tweaking your strings... So that, here's what Paul's saying, here it is. You're supposed to put on the armor before the battle, not during the battle. <laughs> You're not supposed to put it on when arrows are flying and other warriors have broken through the breach and they're hurtling their broadswords at you and you say, that's not the time to say, excuse me while I slip into something more appropriate. Why do, you, why do you think Paul's using a military example to finish off this wonderful book of Ephesians? Yeah, because why does he say that being a Christian is like being a soldier? You know, it's not because he's trying to glorify the military. It's not so Sam could use another Saving Private Ryan example tonight. It's because he's saying, do you seriously understand the peril that you could be in? Do you seriously realize that if you were lazy about using the Bible in your life, do you realize that if you're not diligent in developing a consistent and a constant prayer life, do you not know that if you allow undealt with sin to continue to fester in your life, if you don't know that if you're not willing to put on the armor of God that you'll be killed and you'll be spiritually knocked out? And you'll find yourself tortured 
and tormented and enslaved. And some of you are thinking, well, how does that work? Because I'm saved and I, I, I know that nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. And I, you know, we, Sam, when are you get to the bit where we're supposed to have victory in Christ and, and all that sort of stuff, uh, positive stuff in spiritual warfare? Look, Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon once said, when it comes to your salvation and your fight with the devil, he says, you can't fall off the boat to heaven, but you can fall onto it, break every, break every bone in your body, and have one painful time in getting there. <laughs> and here's what he's getting at. The devil may be mighty, and he is mighty. We must not underestimate the enemy that we're up against. The devil may be mighty, but he's defeated. And the problem is you can be mighty before you've officially been defeated. Just ask anyone that's seen a dirty soccer or a dirty AFL team. Certainly not a dirty rugby team because there is no dirtiness in that wonderful game. <laughs> but you know, you know what an enemy's like. You know, where there's, there's three minutes left to go and the score's 50 nil. And they know, they know they've got no hope of winning this. And what do they do? They just start playing the man, they start playing the person. You know, the devil is like he's, like, he's like a mischievous, frustrated little opposition that is absolutely relentless. And absolutely ruthless in his pursuit to stuff up your final moments of your boat ride to heaven between now and the time in which Jesus Christ puts his whole thing to bed. He's relentless. He's, def- he's defeated. The, the, as big as the power is, there's no long-term possibility for his victory. The score is five billion to nil. And this is how you know, Colossians 2 verse 13, Paul says, When you were dead in your sins... And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, in your old way of life is what he's saying there. God made you alive with Christ. Isn't that Ephesians 2? Now, I'm not the only one that's unoriginal in their preparation. And Paul's, Paul's using a little bit of his lines from both Colossians and Ephesians. That's his saving private right approach. Having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And here it is. This, this slots right in. This, this, is, this is your nuclear fuel rod for this verse here from Ephesians 6, Colossians 2, 15. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. I call that the twins principle. Danny DeVito, Arnold Schwarzenegger, 1988. DeVito is this really just creepy little... Decrepit man, really. He was a petty criminal. And Arnold Schwarzenegger was this uh, scientific experiment that had just sheer human perfection. Pecks the size of dinner plates. <laughs> they, they didn't realize they were both part of an experiment. And they'd been separated at birth, and DeVito was just the thrown away trash, and, and Schwarzenegger was the perfect example of what they intended to be to create the most perfect human being. And, and and Schwarzenegger rows himself off this Fijian island somewhere in the Pacific and turns up in a smoky and dirty Los Angeles, finds this funny little Jewish-looking guy, DeVito, with a ball head and a ponytail, stealing a few cars. And he, he manages to get there right at the right time as DeVito is about to get made a mess of by the people that he owes some money to. 
And these guys are throwing DeVito all through the foyer of his office. These two big gangsters are over him. They're going to break his arms with baseball bats. And, and at the very last minute, as they're about to throttle him in the head, this massive guy with pecs the size of plates crawls over the top of them, grabs them by the neck and throws them against the wall, knocks them clean out. And DeVito, having never met him, walks up to these gangsters, realises you know, who this big guy is, and he stands over the top of them and he says, you know what, you mess with me, you mess with my whole family. He disarmed the powers and the authorities. And Christ has spiritual pecs the size of plates, if you get what I'm saying. <laughs> you know, just, just at the moment when we felt that we were going to get throttled by the schemes of a more powerful enemy, a brother who we'd never really met before, the perfect one, the one who, 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 who lived life the way it was meant to be, grabbed him by the head, threw him against the wall and knocked him out. That's what that passage is saying. It's a gospel according to twins. So in that way, we have won the match, but your opposition will always want to injure you and stuff you around. Friends, that's how we fight back. We put on the full armor of God. We do business with the gospel. It's a bit boring, isn't it? I thought there'd be some other wonderful hocus-pocus incantation that we could do to go fight the devil. No, basically it's back to first principles yet again. That your Bible and your prayer life and your community life together are the ways in which we ought to fight, defeat this frustrating enemy. And so I'll leave you with this tonight, friends. Where do you need to do business with God in this area of spiritual warfare? I think first and foremost, do you understand that we are in a battle? I think, from, I think from my own perspective, what this passage has done for me has, has brought it to the forefront and made it ever more real that we are in a battle here, guys. That every single one of us individually has a responsibility for our own holiness and our own obedience to God. That, that this SAS trooper that is the devil, will, he won't come in here and burn Northside Community Church down as his main scheme. No, the way he's going to do it in those hours of darkness and of loneliness and dong, 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 dong. He's, he's going to play each and every one of us. And it's different for each and every one of us. He's going to take the things that hurt you the most. And he's going to keep strumming that string so you could warp the, the wonderful and the beautiful and the life-giving gospel that makes this church grow. Friends, do you, do, you, do you have that perspective? I guess secondly, do you understand who we're fighting? Have you come to a realization that there is a ruler and there is an evil power in this world that we fight and he is our opposition as a Christian? But most importantly, do we know how we fight back? Do we understand who we are? Do you understand that if he wants to mess with me, he messes with my whole family? That the ultimate brother in Jesus Christ has smashed the powers and the principalities against the marble wall of an LA office block. Now, there need be no fear for us that we be thrown around or thrust around by the great deceiver. Friends, there is a battle going on for your soul this week. And might I encourage you that as we head to this ministry time tonight, there, there is no greater weapon than prayer. There is great, no greater weapon than confession to God that if there are things in our lives tonight, myself included, that the devil has been strumming in your life, you may want to come and confess that in prayer tonight with a ministry team who can hold that in confidence. We want to pray of you like that. Friends, corporately, even if you don't come up the back tonight, we need to be praying. 
because there's no point talking all of this modern family stuff. There's no point talking spiritual gifts and spiritual growth and all the wonderful fluffy stuff if we don't come to the realization that Northside Community Church is smack bang in the middle of a spiritual and eternal battle. So friends, what, what, what do you need to do? How do you need to fight tonight? I'll leave it with you.